Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Amy Harrison is an associate professor in psychology and a clinical psychologist. She's worked in specialist inpatient, outpatient and daycare services for children, adolescents and adults with eating disorders in the NHS and supported patients, family members and carers. At UCL, she leads a research group focused on the social emotional functioning in eating disorders. And this research looks at understanding the cognitive and social emotional factors that might lead to and perpetuate eating disorders. She's also interested in translating the findings into new treatments. Well, Amy, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How about you? Great. And we're delighted to be bringing your research to a wider audience. And we're talking really about, you know, young people's emotional life, emotional regulation, their ability to interact with other young people, but particularly perhaps when they're being supported through an eating disorder. Tell us a little bit about friendships. What do we know about friendships and young people with eating disorders? Well, we know that for all young people, friendships are really important. They're an important part of our social and emotional development. And in eating disorders, they can really be disrupted in lots of different ways. I guess one of the ways in which they can be disrupted is that lots of social interactions take place around food and drink. And, you know, if you don't feel confident about eating with your friends, then that can make it really difficult. And eating disorders can be really isolating and can affect your mood. And you might not want to be, you might not be as keen to go out with your friends and have fun and sort of do the things that you would normally do. I think the other thing is that if you have to go into treatment, that can also take you away from your friendship circles and friendship groups. And eating disorders don't just impact the person, they impact all of the people around them. So people in your family, your friends. And it's not your fault, but that's just the nature of the illness. And so they can really cause ruptures and frictions between people and their friends. And people may not know what to say and may not know how to act. And that can cause difficulties. I think, you know, generally the gist of the research is that where we've got eating disorders, people tend to report smaller friendship groups. So their sort of social circle, their social network narrows down and it often gets smaller and smaller across the journey of the illness. And it makes so much sense when you say it, but I don't think it's an aspect of eating disorder support that people may actually think about. But as you say, it can be frightening to be with someone who's got an eating disorder and you're serving a meal. You don't know what to do, what to say, if you're a friend, if you're the friend's parent, parties. So as you've just pointed out, this is a very, very important area, I think, to think about. And as you've referred to, you know, young people going through this illness, they can respond in sort of very different ways in social situations. It's not a sort of a one size fit all 
uh, response, is it? Yes, it can be really variable. Usually it's about social anxiety and how people are experiencing their body and themselves as a person in that social context. So often people will be sort of feeling like there's a, a spotlight on them and feeling that others are really judging them. They might feel uncomfortable in their body and how they look and may feel that others might be thinking the same. So there can be a lot of mind reading going on. And of course, if you're really anxious and you're really, yeah, you're really struggling to sort of make sense of the situation, that can make you perform more poorly in a social situation. And you might accidentally not come across as interested or sort of engaged in the conversation because you've just got so much going on in your mind. And that can be really the case when people are eating with others. They might be worried about are they eating enough or are they eating too much or what are they eating and what do other people think about that? What does their eating disorder say about that? So if you've got all of that going on in your mind, it's really difficult, isn't it, to follow a conversation and kind of get that connection going with your friends. And to enjoy the interaction. Yes. So is there sort of an extensive literature on this, you know, in terms of evidence base or is it quite scant? Yes, it's a great question. It's an extensive literature really now that's been developing over the last sort of 15 to 20 years. A lot of the research comes from adults with eating disorders and quite often people that have had the illness for quite a long time. So I suppose that's one of the cautions to sort of put out there. But we do have more and more data from younger younger groups. And I guess what we, we also have, which is very useful, is data on people who've recovered from an eating disorder. So we can look and see how that illness actually affects you going forwards. And do you recover some of these friendship groups and um, so, social skills, perhaps, that might be affected by the illness? And what sort of aspects of social emotional functioning are most impacted by an eating disorder? I mean, I know that you've done some fascinating work into the use of eye contact and body language in people with eating disorders. So tell us a little bit about that and what your findings sort of indicated. Yeah, so we conducted an experimental study where we actually videoed people interacting with others. And in one of the studies, we were interested in people's body language, so their non-verbal communication. So this might be things like gestures, kind of moving your hands along with your speech, leaning in towards the person to indicate that you're interested in them, um, the orientation of your body as it's sort of positioned towards the person or away. And what we found was that in this was in adults with eating disorders and all types of eating disorder, people didn't use their hands as much to support their speech. And that might not sound problematic in itself, but Others may detect that as being a bit different, potentially, and it might potentially accidentally indicate to others that you're not kind of as involved in the interaction as the other person is. And that can be a bit of a a signal to them to back off. Also, we found that people weren't really looking at the person as directly. And instead, they were sort of fiddling with parts of their, touching parts of their body or sort of fiddling with their fingers I suppose that could be indicating that people were feeling a bit more socially anxious and um, they weren't necessarily leaning in towards the person that they were having a conversation with. And these are all really important social cues that are very subtle and nobody really teaches us how to do them. We just seem to learn through experience that these things work and we often mirror the person that we're having a conversation with. And we saw that these things were happening less in people with eating disorders. 
the other thing that we found in this body of experimental work is that when we ask people to look at social stimuli, so for example, a static image of somebody with a face depicting an emotion, or something a little bit more typical that we would see in our everyday lives, like a video of people having a conversation, and also um, to actually engage in a social interaction themselves with my research assistant. What we found was that people with eating disorders looked a lot less at the eyes of the people they were interacting with. And this was in all of those sort of types of stimuli. So in the the static images, the video of the actors having a, a conversation and when they were having a chat with somebody. And you know, when we have a social interaction, we don't sort of stare people in the eyes and kind of uh, maintain eye contact 100% of the time. We kind of make some eye contact and we look away and then we look back. But we did find that people with eating disorders were looking away much more. They weren't as, they were using their eye contact, eye gaze in a different way to people without eating disorders. And interestingly, in that study, we also had a group of people who'd recovered from an eating disorder. So they'd had that in the past. And they kind of had this intermediate profile so they weren't quite the same as people who'd never had the illness and they weren't they were using their eye contact a little bit more than people who were currently unwell so that could indicate that having an eating disorder potentially gets you out of practice a bit that the isolation stops you from being good at some of these really key social skills and of course there could be possible biological changes that happen if you give your brain intermittent access or not much access to food, to energy sources, potentially that changes the the way we process information and that might have a lasting effect potentially. We don't know what people were like before the illness, so that's a study that we need to do to follow people up and find out whether some of these differences are there before or not. And whether or not there's there's a sort of a personality trait or sort of a, a particular personality characteristic associated with sort of greater I don't know, incidents of eating disorders or... Yeah, that it could be sort of a predisposing factor. And we did control, we did sort of think about things like autism and social anxiety in this work because we know that, uh, and also mood, depression, we know that these things can also impact how much eye contact people give. But even when we considered those in the analyses, we still found these differences. So it is something that's very interesting. And it's just an example of, you know, when I've been on a ward, maybe taking a a new staff member around that's something that often people comment on that people maybe aren't engaging with them or aren't looking at them I mean of course when you're unwell and you're really poorly you're probably not going to be running up to somebody and saying hi but this is actually an experience that lots of people that work and support people with eating disorders share with us that people often have this more flat face they might not give as much emotional expression and may not give as much eye contact. And the trouble with that is it can turn other people off and it can make your friends potentially not want to hang out because they, they're not really sure. And yeah. reduce the social support that might be so exactly. important. That's it, yeah. It's fascinating. I mean, to what extent with eating disorders in a treatment settings are friendships important to recovery? You know, the way in which you'd share a ward with people who are also going through something similar? Yeah, I mean, recovering from an eating disorder on an inpatient unit is an interesting experience, isn't it? Because for some people, this is a place where finally others get them and they're around other people that have the same challenges. And that can be really 
supportive and quite a revelation. On the other hand, eating disorders love to compete and can really it can really sort of get into these these relationships that you might build with other people on the ward. So that can be a bit of a, a difficulty. And interestingly, I had one of my students did a really interesting study where she interviewed people on inpatient units in China. And that was actually what one thing that they reported was that there was lots of competition and lots of calibration of behaviours. And if one person had to have an increase in their sort of energy requirements, everybody found that very funny and they weren't very kind about it because they knew it'd be really horrible for that person and really difficult. And we get lots of, yeah, we get lots of dynamics like that. I think the other thing is that Sometimes inpatient units can be places of solitude and they can be places where you can meet friends for life that really have gone on a journey with you. And, you know, I certainly know of people that have been hospitalised many times and have developed friends through that experience and they've been really supportive friends. So, yeah, I think that there are quite a few different ways it can pan out, actually. So something I'm quite interested in, if a if a teenager has a close friend at school, I think I've read in the general friendship literature that sometimes there can be a transferability in terms of things like depression. So you might have a, a dyad where they're sort of, you know, a little bit of a contagious effect or they're sort of, they start reflecting one another. And I just wondered if there was anything that you were aware of about the close friendship, like how can someone be a fantastic close friend to someone going through an eating disorder? And is there a danger? You know, is there something parents need to be aware of, of a little bit of transferability? You can understand why from a parent's perspective, it might be a bit frightening even helping their child being a good friend to a child going through such a difficult time. Yeah, I think, you know, as humans, we're models for each other, aren't we? So we demonstrate behaviours and then we're really good at mimicking and copying what other people do. I think that's a really interesting question in the context of eating disorders because often when I've wanted to try and go into schools and collect data from from students there and sort of research this area, that's something that teachers have said to me. We don't want you coming in talking about eating disorders because everyone will get eating disorders. I don't think it's contagious in that sense, but I suppose what it can do is make people feel more uncomfortable about their own body and how they eat but that won't be the case for everyone you know for many not not everyone gets eating disorders even they were all exposed to environmental triggers like you know particular images on social media and a sort of diet culture only a small percentage a notable but small percentage of people actually develop eating disorders so there are lots of different routes into this illness but I think it can be distressing for people's friends and I, I appreciate um, that parents would, could be a bit worried about that I guess you're going to be more vulnerable if you yourself and um, let's say as a teenager are a bit uncomfortable about your own body that you have some body dissatisfaction and then if you see your friend making changes to their food or exercise they're starting to look different, that could be a bit sensitizing, it could be a bit provocative. And from the perspective of the person with the eating disorder, they often don't want anyone to see them or to know about it, it could be quite secretive. So it certainly wouldn't be their intention to, you know, affect another person negatively. But it's just like when people come into school and start talking about 
your body in a negative way or about diets. These things can all be cues and triggers, can't they? So we have to try and become a bit more robust to them and think about what we need for our own health, you know, regardless of all of these different things we might be exposed to. And in terms of being an optimal friend to someone who is going through that, are there things that are good to say, whether or not you're visiting a young person in the hospital, which I know many young people do, or saying to them at break time, lunch time, should they offer them a sandwich? Should they not? Should they, you know, should they sit with them when they don't want to eat? I mean, it can be a bit of a minefield. Yes, it can be hard to know what to do. And I think that's the same with lots of different mental health difficulties, isn't it? People often say, I don't know what to say. So a person with an eating disorder is a sort of super feeler. So you'll often get things wrong because they're very, their brain is very sensitive to any perceived criticism or some sort of social threat. So always start with that sense that I probably will put my foot in it and I'm trying to help and to care and to be a friend to this person. And you can let them know, you know, I might say something wrong, but you just tell me and I'll try and get it right next time. I think the first thing to do is to try and avoid talking about food and weight and shape. Because that again, that sort of sensitizes the person further and can make them feel really under the spotlight. So often when we've had people that sort of going back to school after treatment to sort of restore their health, they might have to eat a certain amount or certain types of things. And so we don't really want people commenting on that. We just want people to be able to stick to their meal plan and be left alone to do that. The other thing that people have told us is a real no-go is to kind of make comments like you're looking well or you look better. That can be a real sort of red rag to a bull for the eating disorder. It really feeds off these sorts of comments because then it starts to pick on the person more and it will really bully them and say, well, that means you're fat and that means you've put on too much weight and that means you don't have an eating disorder anymore. And those things could be really upsetting to the person. You know, the person that's saying it is only intending to say, thank goodness you're okay and phew, you're looking better. That's not quite what the person hears. So what you can say instead is things like, it's nice that we can chat. You know, your hair looks really shiny or it's really nice that you were able to come out for a walk with me or that we could do that sports together or whatever. So try and talk about something that's a bit more about the bigger picture and about the social connection. The other thing, I suppose, if you notice one of your friends is really struggling, it's okay to tell somebody, you know, you can, if you're worried and you don't know about whether or not you should raise it with the person, you can always tell a parent or a teacher and discuss it with them because sort of, if you feel that person's at risk, I think it would be good to sort of act on that. It is good to act on it and it's okay to overstep the mark and you might have it wrong, but at least you, you tried to keep your friends safe. And is it a good idea in general to be as normal as possible and say, do you want to go to this party on Saturday night? Should they just sort of sustain that kind of normal teenage interaction? Yeah, because friends are a way out of the illness. Friends give you access to a bigger world, a bigger life. And then the eating disorder over time will often become not so necessary. So that is really, really kind and caring to do something like that. And you might want to say to the person, I can imagine that it might be quite daunting to go there or that there'll be some tricky things about it. And you can always do a little plan with them beforehand. You know, what would make it possible for you to go? Um, It might be, you know, that they're at a stage where they feel they could have something to eat with others or they could bring their own food and eat it 
there or they might want to come later after other people have eaten if that's what works best for them they might want some support afterwards from a family member for example when they get home so there's lots of ways that you can get around any difficulties and that's really good isn't it that somebody would then invite you and make you feel part of the tribe again because eating disorders push you out don't they and we're a tribal species we want to be part of the group and what about things like getting dressed for a party which could be so fun if you're a teenager and you get together and you're deciding what to wear again are there any sort of delicate sensitivities around commenting on you look amazing your figure looks great in that you know that young people could be slightly more aware of yeah that's a really good question so i think generally steer clear of appearance related comments that are about weight and shape and that's actually something that we could all do you know we could all take on because then we just get into this kind of weight and shape being tied to how good you are as a person or how nice you are etc so yeah, you could comment more on the effort that the person's put in and say, gosh, you must have spent a long time on your hair. It looks great. Or like, I really like the creativity in your outfit. And then for the person with an eating disorder, you might want to plan your outfit beforehand and do, you know, you can do that with the support of somebody if you like. So that when the kind of anxiety of the moment's rising and you're getting ready and you're about to go to that social event, which can be quite nerve wracking, at least one thing's kind of sorted beforehand and you just need to stick to your plan put on the thing that you want and you can have plan b's and plan c's because it might be that on the day you don't fancy your plan a and you want your plan b or your plan c but the point is to to try and get there and, and see if you can maybe enjoy yourself a little bit with your friends in terms of sort of parent to parent so you know you're inviting someone else's child to a party to sunday lunch you know that they're going through yeah. that very difficult time again is normalcy the way forward asking the parent how you can be most supportive perhaps yeah I think you just need to ask that question just ask an open question like you know what are some of the things I can do to make this more enjoyable for them what are some of the things you think I should be looking out for I, I guess the thing about eating disorders is that they can present in very varied ways so what might be an issue for one person might be a pretty okay for another so I think just kind of collaborating I suppose working together in that way and um, sort of thinking ahead can really help I think just being mindful that it might be quite a stressful situation for everyone and you could even just name that and say it's the first time we've got together since you've been out of hospital or you know we, we know that you're having a difficult time let's think together about how we can make this work well, that's a lovely thing as well. I think schools could say to children who've come back from hospital, and which is a very scary time for staff because they want to make sure it goes as well as possible. So again, presumably there would be a triangle between the clinician, the school, the parents, and they would come together to manage that process. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, these transitions are so key. Transition out of hospital and back to school or to university, to the workplace you know, transition maybe from one school to another, from one class to another. These are obviously quite anxiety provoking situations that, you know, have a lot of uncertainty around them. So working together like that, the triangle is a, a brilliant way of describing it, means that the person's going to feel more confident and is going to feel more, yeah, it's just going to hopefully feel more supported and more able to do it. 
So yes, you want to be having discussions like that, really working together, because eating disorders don't go away on their own. I think that's something that we know from lots of research and clinical experience. They they do need this team approach and different people taking the reins at different times, different people having different jobs in supporting. And yeah, that's really, really good point. Who You know, where's the person going to eat? Who's going to support them? You know, is there a contact in the school that they can go to if they're feeling like they're having a difficult day? Are there any kind of arrangements around? Are they allowed to go in a bit late or, you know, is there a bit more flexibility around their attendance? These things can be really helpful to talk about beforehand. We know, well, we know actually in terms of the personality traits that are associated with eating disorders that people will be having very high standards, be very perfectionist, really want to do well. So they might not be ready that it could be challenging (laughs) so we can sort of buffer that a little bit by having these conversations beforehand. We've done lots of research and tooled up with other researchers about social media which can be a friend and a foe and I just wondered during when when young people are in clinical settings are they allowed access to sort of influencer social media is that part and parcel of that sort of dialogue around treatment? Mm. So on a sort of child and adolescent inpatient unit, that hasn't been my experience that people would be allowed access to their phones, to social media and so on. They can certainly have access to their phones, but we wouldn't be wanting them to be on Instagram or whatever it might be. (laughs) I mean, that's... It's a bit of a difficult one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, it could be something that really feeds the eating disorder and perpetuates it and really evokes more and more distress and more comparisons and on the other hand it's quite unusual isn't it not to be on some form of social media so I guess part of treatment is helping the person to learn how to use it in a useful way and have it but be able to sort of manage their mental health around it and think about which accounts to follow how to know that an account might not be kind of recovery focused and to yeah, to sort of have time off it if it's not working for them. Because I think it's difficult for young, for all of us really, but particularly young people to live without some form of social media. So just sort of taking an interest in their digital diet as well and just keeping Mm -hmm. an eye on it and interacting and thinking about what they're following and why. That might be a very interesting role for their friend to just sort of keep an eye on that. Yeah, that's really good because they've got that sort of window into that that sort of digital life, haven't they? And you could say, oh, I saw you were following that person. That that looks a little bit eating disordery. Do you want to chat about it? Yeah. Yeah. I think even TikTok, I was alarmed to see lots of young people in quite distressed states from hospitals where they've been sectioned or they've got eating disorders or and they're literally live broadcasting Mm. to a wide audience and it just seems you know they do attract a lot of positive support but at the same time there's it's a very difficult space to occupy yeah that's an interesting one isn't it yeah because I think gosh you know is it is it helping or is it hindering and is it something that's under the radar potentially Yeah, I think that's a very interesting sort of observation that people are doing that. And I guess, you know, are there other people in the hospital on these TikTok videos? Because that might be sort of um, breaching their own confidentiality. Are they sort of agreeing to be on them and so on? 
other patients you know in that setting I've certainly come across that in my own work sort of people checking themselves into the hospital on Facebook and tagging other patients and you know having having to explain that that's probably not a good idea that other people might not want that information being shared it's a breach of their privacy and you know I think you've got to ask the question and you know what's the function of that what is it about it that might help you that you want people to kind of know that you're in hospital and respond to you you know what are you what are you trying to get there um it sounds like people are trying to get well I don't know I suppose one hypothesis might be is that they're trying to talk to others about their experience and you know sometimes that can be very healing can't it to sort of share your experience with others if you're really vulnerable and you you're in hospital you might not be at your best in terms of making decisions about that and then then it's out there and you can't really take it back so it is that is quite tricky isn't it well in terms of you mentioned earlier about body dissatisfaction and we know that a lot of parents family schools are very concerned about body dissatisfaction generally in the earlier years the primary and prep school years and would you say that sort of that emotional literacy education it's so important at an earlier point, in addition to this sort of, you know, bolstering body satisfaction in sort of meaningful mm. and evidence-based ways. So it seems like we've got a lot of work to do in the earlier years. Yeah, I like this this question a lot. I, I've actually um, led a an epidemiological study recently that was funded by the Medical Research Council, and we had access to a study called the Millennium Cohort, and this was children that were born around the year 2000 and have been followed up many times. And there are some measures around how people feel about their bodies. There are some measures around dieting behaviours, eating disorder type behaviours. And interestingly, what we found, which was sort of opposite to what I was expecting, was that the body dissatisfaction came after people started to intend to lose weight or intend to change their shape and weight, or were actually restricting how much they ate or exercising to influence their shape and weight. So I think often, well, this perhaps suggests that when these things don't make you happy or maybe don't work in the way that you wish them to, then you become more dissatisfied with your body and you don't like it very much. And then, as you point out, we do have people that sort of at a very young age have problems with how they experience their body and when you're in school there's lots of people to compare yourself with. You can compare yourself infinitely, can't you, on social media. I, I think one thing that we can do is, as parents, as teachers, as, as adults looking after children is to change the way we talk about our bodies, to model talking about them kindly, or if that's difficult for us, just in a neutral way. So trying not to talk about you know diets and weight and shape and oh I've eaten this pizza now I need to go on a run because these things are really sensitizing to people that feel a little bit uncomfortable about their body and of course as a young person your body's changing a lot isn't it over time so there's that that natural experience across your sort of the early part of that of your lifespan and then what that does is you model to others that you know you can have a nice relationship with your body and one that's not so judgmental one that's a bit kinder a bit more compassionate and you know at the sort of more higher intensity end of that I suppose it, you know you might even celebrate it and say wow I just you know went for a 10 minute run and my legs got me to the end of it or you know really 
impressed with my ability to concentrate for hours on end in my class. So I think we can really play an important role as adults in buffering some of these things and teaching different ways. Because the thing is, judging yourself negatively, I guess, isn't an advantageous behavior to follow it doesn't really work out very well in the long term so we can model more advantageous ways of talking about the body and weight and shape and food so sort of emphasizing body capability and body gratitude yeah and looking in the mirror and saying something even reasonably positive is it you know with the sort of spring and summer coming you can imagine so many dialogues in front of that mirror i need to lose a stone before christmas or get it bikini ready, all of that damaging yeah. narrative around what is expected of us. Yeah, I think it's not our fault as adults because we've been exposed to these messages, haven't we? So it's not blaming people and saying, you know, you're doing it wrong. We've only internalised what we've been told over the years that that's bad and this is bad and you've got to look this way or whatever. Yeah, so our job is to try and be mindful of that. And then when we speak about, we don't have to speak about it in a positive way as such. If it, you know, just being neutral can be good enough but speaking about our body kindly is a really good yeah a good way to you know reduce the body dissatisfaction because some an amount of body dissatisfaction is is not kind of pathological in itself you might be interested in getting fitter or in I don't know being taller or whatever or shorter even and you know then it's it's how we relate to that you know if it really feeds into our self-esteem and our self-evaluation and if we don't achieve that you know there's something fundamentally wrong with us that's where it goes it's not good and presumably because <laughs> people always ask about boys sort of differentiated you know experiences mm. of eating disorders just briefly knowing what you've seen and experienced in a clinical setting are there, are there any particular sort of differences that you want to draw people's attention to in terms of even spotting eating disorders in young people yeah yeah i mean eating disorders affect people of all ages all genders all socio-demographic backgrounds and yes it's a, definitely an area of research that's increasing and it's something that is really important because when we're thinking about young boys young boys will carry less body fat than young girls so if they start restricting how much they eat their energy intake they can lose that weight very very quickly and that can be really difficult for the body and they can have lots of physical side effects and yeah so I mean that is the same sort of worry for girls as well but because of the sort of differences in sort of physical body makeup I think one of the things that we know from research and clinical experience is that there are lots of similarities. So the drive for thinness is, is shared across different genders. Often, you know, difficulties around regulating your nutritional intake. So, for example, people kind of losing control of their eating, experiencing a binge where people might overeat and lose control and might be really distressed by that are shared across all genders but there is something that we see in that more commonly in males um, and that's a kind of drive for muscularity so in my clinical practice we've seen that more in boys and that is something that is spoken about in the literature that people want their body to look very muscular or sort of very pumped up and very strong 
that's not not just restricted to boys but it is something that we see more commonly there and that is quite common but as you say that's not always going to end up in an eating disorder that can just be something that you know that teenage boy aspires to you know generally yeah yeah I mean wanting to be fit and um you know getting your body moving is, is a great thing I guess what we're thinking about when there's an eating disorder is that the the thoughts and feelings and behaviours cause the person loads of distress. So they really make them feel terribly upset and stop them from going about their everyday life. So they cause interference in their day-to-day functioning. You know, they might not be going out with their friends as much because they want to be exercising at home or they might be spending all their pocket money on diet supplements and they can't sort of do other activities If they miss a workout, they might be absolutely distraught or if the thing that they, you know, plan to eat isn't available, they just kind of have a meltdown. You know, that's sort of on that level. So it's kind of obsessive thinking and distress coupled Mm -hmm. with that. It's not just kind of, you know, normal teenager or want to be buff and bulk up and it's it's different to that. You can hear in what you're saying that there's a genuine sort of psychic illness there, isn't there? Yeah, it's the quality and quantity of it and the amount that it impacts the person's life. You know, if if you're going working out and you're enjoying it and, you know, you can skip a workout from time to time and not really be that bothered, that's a preference, isn't it? You have preferences and activities that you do that you enjoy. But, you know, if you're distraught because you can't do it or something doesn't go to plan and it just throws you off so terribly, that's something different. Yeah. Okay, that's incredibly useful. Last question. I'm aware of organizations like Beat, an amazing charity that you probably know lots about that supports families or, you know, helps educate families about particular conditions and also has little online groups if people are waiting for treatment. Are there any other organizations that we don't know about that you'd like to flag up to either schools, parents or young people themselves who are needing that support at this time? Yeah, particularly for young people, there's a brilliant forum called FEAST, F-E-A-S-T. And this was set up by a group of parents who were supporting children with eating disorders. And they have loads of information on there. So if you just search for it online, you'll come across the FEAST website and they have forums, they have guides, they have ideas of what to expect if your loved one is unwell and needs some treatment. They have all sorts of support, peer support, tools and resources, strategies and tips. So that's a really good one that lots of families I've worked with have found really helpful, particularly when they're supporting a younger person with an eating disorder. And I think in terms of schools, Beat has some brilliant resources on their website that schools can look at. It even has policies that schools can use and download and lots of they can offer training as well to schools. So there is a lot of support out there. Brilliant. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. Honestly, it's just, I've learned so much from speaking to you. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of all parents and schools, you know, that thank you so much for your great research in this area. Is there any way in which people can keep up to date with your work? And if there are schools listening that want to be engaged in that kind of research activity, would you welcome that? Oh, yes, please. I'd always love to hear from schools to partner with, to work with together. So you can follow me on Twitter. It's at 
Dr. Amy K. Harrison. And I also have a website, which is www.dramykharrison.com. And I publish and write about my research on there and link to the published articles in peer-reviewed journals. So come and join me there and keep the conversation going. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. We will. And we we will be telling everyone about your work and publicising this interview and, and linking to all of the websites that you've mentioned as well within Tooled Up Education. So thank Thank you so much, Amy, and uh, have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.